was a blessing. James chapter number one. James chapter number one. We spent a considerable amount of time last Sunday looking at just the first part of the first verse of James 1, giving a little bit of background on this epistle. And today we will look at some of the background again, and then we will, Lord willing, be looking at the first uh, several verses where we are commanded to count it all joy. And it is difficult for us to count trials and tribulations as joy. But we are commanded here by Pastor James, who was probably pastoring the church at Jerusalem, one of the pillars in the early church, as we looked at last week. And he is encouraging us with grace, from grace, or by grace, from the Lord, with God's power and by his strength, to truly have a joy that can only come from the Lord during our times of trials, during our times of tribulation. But we see again in verse number one that James identified himself as a servant of God. We spent quite a bit of time last week talking about this term servant, the humility in which James wrote this epistle, the fact that he would identify himself first and foremost as a servant, having been saved later in life, having been brought under conviction post-resurrection, though he had grown up with his half-brother Jesus, at times possibly even mocking him, having rejected him for so long, now getting saved post-resurrection, and now serving his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, faithfully there and alongside the apostles and being an instrument in the early church, we see James serving the Lord, serving his Lord, serving his Master, serving his Savior with humility, with devotion, having given up his rights and belonging to God, his Savior, to Jesus Christ and Allowing Christ to be his master, to be his owner. We spent time looking at that word servant. We won't go back and rehearse all of that. But he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. The twelve tribes. So we've identified already James, who he is, as the half-brother of Jesus. He is a Jew, and he is writing specifically in the immediate application to the 12 tribes, to Jews who are scattered abroad throughout the known world. He's identifying 12 tribes because of, obviously, the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's sons, Joseph receiving a double portion through Manasseh and Ephraim. But notice they are scattered abroad. This has been identified as the dispersion or the diaspora. Scattered abroad could be a reference back to Acts chapter 7 where Stephen was stoned to death, where the coats of those who were stoning Stephen were laying, were being laid at the feet of Saul who was persecuting the church and he continued in that persecution in Acts chapter 8 before his conversion. In Acts chapter 12 there is a persecution of the church by Herod 
We know him as Herod Agrippa. That was around A.D. 44. So that was possibly some of the cause for the dispersion of the Jews that James was referring to, scattered abroad. Through this persecution or through these persecutions, Jews had been leaving Palestine. Some Jews were leaving because they had converted to Christ, yes. Some Jews were leaving because there was a prejudice, there was a bias There was a hatred for the Jews. There was a racial prejudice against the Jews. So some were leaving because of persecution, having trusted Christ as their Savior, as followers of Christ. Some were leaving as a result of the racial bias and racial prejudice against the Jews. We could go back even historically and see that there was a dispersion of the Jews back in the northern kingdom, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., and the Assyrians deported some Jews, but also brought in their own people who intermarried with the Jews and resulted in the Samaritans, who were hated by the Jews because they were half-breeds. And we spent some time talking about that when we studied through the book of John. Well, there was also the deportation in the southern kingdom by Nebuchadnezzar, the the Babylonian emperor, king, who in 605 B.C. deported a group of Jews that probably included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 597 B.C., he came back and he invaded and took some more. And then in 586 B.C., there was the conquering of Jerusalem. So there were some historical dispersions. Some Jews never even returned to the land of Palestine, even after Cyrus's decree to allow the Jews to return. We know that in 63 B.C., the Romans conquered Palestine, the Roman Empire coming in and conquering Palestine. That was around 63 B.C., took some Jews as slaves, took some into other parts of their empire. And then by the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, there were, of course, many Jews who had settled in the land. There were some from the northern tribes who had even uh, settled in the southern Part of Palestine. We know that there was some tribal identification that became difficult as a result of these dispersions, as a result of the Roman conquest in 63 BC. Later in 70 AD, there would be another conquest of Jerusalem by the Roman Emperor Titus that would result in the destruction of the temple and the destruction of genealogical records, which has complicated things even further when it comes to the identification of the 12 tribes. But the Jews have been very, very careful with their records and their genealogies, and I understand that there is some identification of the Jews with their specific tribes. But nevertheless, by the time that James wrote, which was probably somewhere between A.D. 44 and A.D. 50, James is writing specifically to Jews who had dispersed due to persecution, due to bias, prejudice, whatever the case may be. Many of these Jews, of course, were believers, were genuine Christ followers, Christian Jews. But there were obviously some who were dispersed, who were unsaved. So again, this book will have a Jewish flavor, a very distinct Jewish application. Though, of course, by the inspiration of God and the preservation of God's word, there is a message and an application for us 
as Gentiles. And God, obviously, in His providence and by His inspiration and preservation, He wants us to know the truths from this epistle and apply them in our lives as Gentiles. There may be a Jew here or someone with Jewish uh, heritage uh, that I'm not unaware of. And there would be an application, obviously, to the Jew first, but also to us as Gentile. So these 12 tribes scattered abroad, he mentions. We know by John 7 and verse 35, there's a reference to the dispersion of the Jews. And by 1 Peter 1 and verse number 1, there appears to even be this term dispersion or diaspora that refers to Jews living outside the land of Palestine. But we also see this very dear and close relationship that James had for his fellow Jews, Christians in particular. He refers to the recipients of this letter as brethren at least 15 times. We will see it there in verse number 2, my brethren. So he is referring to, he's writing to, he's especially identifying Christian Jews. Fellow believers who are Jews, but they are believing Jews. They are converted Jews, as sometimes the term is used. And uh, Dr. Hartman, uh, I don't think that uh, he likes to use the term converted Jews. I think he prefers Christian Jews. Uh, when he was here uh, last fall, he, I'm not sure if he addressed that or not, but I remember uh, one of the workshops or one of the messages that I heard him preach, uh, Dr. Hartman being one of our missionaries, uh, Shalom Ministries, and they have a tremendous ministry in New York City and in, in Israel, and uh, really they are reaching Jews around the world, but specifically in New York City and in Israel, and his son is involved in a church plant there in Jerusalem, and uh, he hesitates to use the word converted Jews because they remain Jews, but they're Christian Jews, they're believing Jews. That's the first and primary audience that James is writing to, but there, there, will be, there will be unbelieving Jews who would be affected by the testimony of the Christian Jews who were being witnessed to by these Christian Jews. So there is obviously an evangelistic application. And then, of course, there's an application for us as believers, as Gentiles. We know that the Old Testament prophesies of the return of the Jews of Israel, to their land. We have seen a precursor to that, 1948, in the current nation of Israel. And we know that eventually Israel, Israel will receive all of the land that God promised them in the Abrahamic covenant. From the river Euphrates to the river Nile, and then the northern and southern borders, there's prophecy of that return in the Old Testament, from Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah 50, Ezekiel 37, and even in the New Testament in Revelation 7. So James is writing really relatively early in the days of the church, 44 to 50 AD. One of the, in the chronological placement of the New Testament books, James would be one of the earliest. And this letter is being taken throughout the known world to these groups of Jews. So it would have been widely circulated, read by Jews around the known world, around the Roman Empire, and no doubt also be read in the hearing of unsaved Jews and even to Gentiles. 
because of the, the Jewish nature, the Jewish flavor of this epistle, there are at least 40 different allusions or references to the Old Testament and at least 20 references or allusions to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew being a gospel account written primarily to the Jews, so it's natural to, to, to see the connection, a Jewish, distinctive Jewish gospel and a distinctive Jewish letter in James's knowledge of the Old Testament and the references, obviously, that Jesus makes throughout the Sermon on the Mount to the Old Testament law and the fulfillment that he is of the law in dealing with the heart aspects of the law and not just the external but the internal. And we'll see that with James as well and at least 20 references or allusions to the Sermon on the Mount. As I mentioned last week, James is even referred to as James the Just because he had such a zeal and he placed such an emphasis on righteous living, on holy living. And he makes it very practical and he speaks to obedience of the believer in very practical ways. Of making our faith active. Of showing, of demonstrating our faith. Having been saved by faith, we then live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And he is very clear throughout the epistle that our faith has walking boots, running shoes, combat boots. Work boots on. Our faith is active. Our faith is real. It shows. It has action. It has an active, our faith is active. So there's a very practical aspect to this epistle. And we see James's zeal and passion for obedient, for righteous living. So that brings us to verse number two where James addresses this very first topic. And he says in verse number two, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Now why would James begin this practical book, the Proverbs of the New Testament, why would he begin with this topic of trials? Well, think about what the Jews that he's writing to, what they have experienced it's very fresh in their minds. Firsthand, many of them have had to leave just about everything due to persecution, due to racial prejudice, due to animosity toward the Jews. They have had to leave everything and have been scattered abroad. They've been dispersed. They have had to have, find new homes and learn new cultures and a new setting. They have gone around the Roman Empire, around the known world, and have developed their, their new communities. They've experienced firsthand trial, tribulation. We know, to some degree, what it's like to, to move, to, to, to pick up everything that you own, and to put it in a U-Haul or some pod, and, and transport it to some other location. We, we know what that's like. We've all, in some way, shape, or form, moved, even if it's just into a college dorm room. And it's amazing, isn't it, that you, you take all this stuff out of your garage, out of your house, and then it just some, somehow it multiplies by the next time you move somewhere. 
I mean, it's that way with college students. It's like, I don't know how these things go from the freshman year to their junior year, and all of a sudden they have twice as much stuff. Even sometimes from the beginning of their college year to the end of their college year, it's like, I don't remember moving all this stuff in. How come we have some, how much to move out? But they had to, in some cases, they had to leave with nothing more than the clothes on their backs and maybe what they could carry with them. They wouldn't have had the U-Haul trucks and they wouldn't have had the different moving companies that we have today. They wouldn't have had the luxury of all-wheel drive vehicles and planes and trains and automobiles. It would have been literally what they could carry or maybe get on the back of a horse, a donkey, a camel. It would have been a major undertaking. They would have been going in some places to a place where they didn't know anybody except maybe those who went with them. Maybe they had a connection. Maybe it was just a safe place where they were given some sort of respite from the vicious assaults or the attacks on their faith. We know that Paul, excuse me, Saul, before he became Paul, he was breathing out vengeance and fire on his fellow Jews who were believing, who were Christians, who were converting to Christianity. He was vehement and passionate in his persecution. So if they were leaving because of even Saul's attacks, imagine the duress that they were under. Imagine the stress, the pressure. Imagine the way in which all this was compounding in their lives as they went to strange cultures and to different places and had to start all over again, so to speak. What if they had children with them? Uprooting and leaving all their friends and all that was familiar to them. And God would give them a measure of grace. And that is what James is first appealing to and bringing to their minds and to our minds by the inspiration of God and the preservation of His Word. Trials, tribulations, difficulties, pressures, stress, sorrows. They are a part of life. Because of sin, because sin entered into the world, there is trouble, there is tribulation, there is death, there is sorrow, there is sufferings. There are various tribulations. And James says, as he's writing to these Jews, to these believers, my brethren, count it, count it, consider it, evaluate it, count it all joy. We're going to see four imperatives in this passage of scripture. We won't get to all eight verses, but we're going to see four imperatives. We're going to see count in verse number two. We're going to see no in verse number three. We're going to see let in verse four in verses nine through 11, and then we're going to see ask in verses five through eight. Four imperatives and coupled with that four essentials Four essentials for victory, for overcoming, for maturing, and for growing through our trials. We're going to see, first of all, a joyful attitude. A joyful attitude. Part of this joyful attitude comes with a perspective that I've already mentioned. That of the fact that trials are to be expected. Trials are to be expected. Man is born unto trouble. 
as the sparks fly upward, we read in the scriptures. Jesus himself said in John 16, in verse 33, In the world ye shall have tribulation. Paul told young disciples in Acts 14, in verse 22, Through much tribulation ye shall enter into the kingdom of God. James was not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preacher. But James gives principles, commands, promises that we can live by. Though we know that there is trials, there are tribulations. Some, some have said that if you're not in a trial now, look out, there's one coming. And maybe you just came out of one. And it just seems like in life we're either coming out of one, we're in one, or we're to be expecting one. Because trials are to be expected. They are a part of life. 1 Peter 4, in verse number 12, Peter writes, By the inspiration of God, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. We all have trials. 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 13, even says that they are common to man. So we can't say, well, nobody else has been through what I'm going through. There's somebody out there somewhere. But the point is that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 that trials are common to man. Everybody has them. And there's usually somebody out there somewhere who has had something very similar to what we are going through or have been through. So trials are to be expected. That's part of our perspective of having a joyful attitude. We have to understand that trials are a part of life. Without going on too much of a rabbit trail here, I, I, I just get a little frustrated sometimes when I, I hear politicians, especially government. The government, they, they, they think that they can bring some sort of utopian world into existence by all their policies and regulations and taxes. Have we had one single government system through taxes and regulation been able to bring any kind of utopian existence into being? It hasn't happened. Everybody thinks that they're going to do it, and they're going to do it. The other person failed, whether it's communism or socialism, even a democratic republic that we feel like is being fractured at its very foundations right now in so many ways. Government cannot bring all of the utopian perspectives and life that it promises and these politicians promise. Government cannot meet all of our needs, take care of all of our wants, and bring peace, wealth, and prosperity into the world. Now, there's going to be a final individual, along with the false prophet, the Antichrist and the false prophet, who's going to make one last appeal through a demonic influence, the spirit of the Antichrist, who's going to try and fail one last time. We've seen all the different empires. We've spent a lot of time looking even at history and we understand that every individual, no matter who the person is, no matter what government operation system he has, they all fail. Only Jesus Christ is the perfect prophet, perfect priest, and perfect king. And he will rule one day in a literal 1,000-year millennial kingdom and then establish an eternal kingdom. And we look forward to that day. But we see here that there are trials. And no government system, no politician, no president is going to remove all the trials and all the suffering and take it all away. I get tired of 
political speeches. It seems like every inaugural speech that a president makes, they make all these promises on their campaign trails and they make all these promises in their inauguration speech about how they're going to solve all the crime, they're going to make everybody wealthy, they're going to take away all of the suffering. I mean, we even have presidents nowadays that say they're going to cure cancer or have already cured it, right? On and on it goes. And they all fail. It's only through Christ. And only in that, only for those who have trusted Christ as their personal Savior and are resurrected or raptured into glory will one day experience the removal of sin, its very presence, and our corruptible will have put on incorruption. We look forward to that glorified state. And that is ultimately the perspective that James is wanting us to have, an eternal perspective, that right now, yes, trials are to be expected, but they are temporary. Paul referred to them in the passage we read earlier as a light affliction that are producing within us a more eternal weight of glory. Notice he says here in Verse number two, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. That phrase fall into has to do with encountering, coming across. We don't seek trials. We don't go after them and say, all right, give me the next one. I can't wait. Bring on the biggest and the baddest and the strongest and the worst trial. We don't act like that. None of us act like that. But they are to be expected. They will come across our path, our life. We sing a song day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Understanding that trials are a part of life. We're going to come across them. We're going to encounter them. He uses the word diverse temptations. Diverse means various. 1 Peter 1 and verse number 6, Peter describes it as manifold temptations. Diverse means various or very colored. It's like the colors of the yarn on a weaver's loom that are brought together to make a beautiful multicolored garment or rug. Trials, afflictions, they take on all kinds of different sizes and shapes. Challenges, obstacles, adversities, enemies, thorns in the flesh, chastisements. Faith builders that God brings into our lives. Oppositions, persecutions. Sometimes trials are financial. Sometimes they're physical. Sometimes they're emotional. There is sorrow. There is sadness. Trials, temptations, they're various. They're very colored. And he says to count. To count it all joy when ye fall into, when ye come across, when you encounter these various, these very colored trials, temptations. He says, count them, consider them, count it all joy. That word count is a financial term. It means to evaluate. It literally means to make a conscious choice. We don't naturally, because of our sin nature, because of our selfishness, we don't naturally look at trials and tribulations with joy. We don't. It goes against the grain of our nature It goes against everything that we humanly think. A trial is a joy. A temptation is a joy. A tribulation is a joy. 
We have to make a conscious choice. We have to evaluate it. We have to count it, reckon it, consider it. With the right attitude, with the right perspective, a joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul would write to us and to the Philippians in chapter 4 and verse number 4. We have to count, evaluate our trials, our temptations, our tribulations in light of what God is doing. We have to have an eternal perspective in our trials, a heavenly perspective. Like Christ in Hebrews 12 and verse number 2 where where we read, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have to have that same mindset that our Lord had with a conscious choice, evaluating with an eternal perspective, counts it as joy. Our afflictions, they come. And if we're not careful, our afflictions, notice in verse number two, the word is temptations. King James translators use that word on purpose. Temptations are, yes, trials and tribulations, but if we don't respond the right way to our trials and to our tribulations, then they become temptations to sin, to become bitter instead of better, to become angry instead of humble and teachable. Dr. Jim Berg, one of my professors in college, he used the illustration of a tea bag. Now, Brother Earl gave me some coffee bags the other day, some dark roast coffee. Mmm, good stuff. Tea bags do the same thing. This coffee bag, we stick it in the hot water, and out of the bag came good, delicious, dark roast coffee. Some of you have tea. My mom, I, I, my dad was a coffee snob. My mom's a tea snob. Tea of all sorts and varieties. What comes out of the bag in the hot water? What flavor comes out? Obviously, it depends on if peppermint or whatever, the flavor that you desire. But what about the tea bag of our life? What comes out when the hot water, the boiling water, the pressures, the stresses, the trials, the tribulations of life come? What comes out of the bag of our life? It's our response. It's our perspective. A a joyful attitude. It has to be a conscious choice. It has to come from our affections being set on things above. It has to come from seeking first, seeking preeminently the, the kingdom of God. Our priority is on the kingdom of God. We have to value character over comfort. We have to value the spiritual over the material and the physical. We have to say like Job, he knoweth the way that I take. That when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. As we just sang that great song, Rejoice in the Lord. Ron Hamilton's with the Lord now. He's whole. He can see with both eyes now. And he had to come to that perspective as he lost that eye and wrote that song. To rejoice in the Lord. And God used his trial in tremendous ways. I know that God used his music in my life in tremendous ways. I grew up on Patch the Pirate. I'm thankful for those godly principles and those verses and those songs that I sing even to this day that speak to eternal truths. God used that trial in his life and it impacted my life. 
A wrong perspective of trials will result in temptation to sin, bitterness, and ultimately unfaithfulness. If we don't have the right perspective, an eternal perspective, we don't have a joyful attitude and count it, make a conscious choice, evaluate that trial from an eternal, heavenly perspective and have that joyful attitude that we count it all joy. We also see not just that word count and that imperative of having a joyful attitude, but we also see, secondly, the word know. And the imperative of an understanding mind. An understanding mind. We have to understand three things about our trials, about our faith. In order to have this understanding mind, in order to know. We, we, we know in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. That word acknowledge, it doesn't mean, oh, hey, and then they pass on by. Hi, how you doing? And they pass on by. It doesn't mean that you just glance at somebody like we do in the, the stores or on the sidewalk, and we give that little hey, or we look down, we don't even acknowledge. It's not that kind of acknowledge. In all thy ways, know him. In all thy ways, understand him. Grow in our knowledge of God, and then he will direct our paths. Because as we know him, we discern his paths. We know what God wants us to do, because we're trusting him. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, know him, and understanding mine. Our faith is going to be tested. Most things don't have any value unless they are tested. Almost every company has some sort of quality control. I would imagine before, for those of you who work at SIA, I would imagine there is some sort of quality control section of SIA so that before a car is rolled out and sold on the lot, there are safety testings and various tests that go on to make sure they're not rolling out a piece of junk, right? Like a Ford. No, sorry, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. I have nothing against Fords. I have a Ford. I own a Ford. My daughter has a Ford uh, down uh, in, in Greenville. Uh, that was just fix or repair daily. Anyway, I'm just joking about the Fords. I don't really have anything against Chevys or Fords. But we have quality control in all kinds of different areas, companies. From medicine that goes through all kinds of evaluations and FDA and everything else. Our faith has to be tested to show that it is real, that it is growing, that it is active, that our faith has the right object, that God is ultimately the object of our faith. When our faith is tested and our trust is in ourselves, in our money, in our physical abilities, in our intellect, in our education, in all the material and physical aspects, when the testing and the trial and the temptation comes, it demonstrates, it shows our trust, doesn't it? It shows where our faith truly lies, who is truly the object of our faith. Abraham's faith was tested. Joseph's faith was tested. God tests us to bring out the best. God tests us to produce Christ's likeness in us for his glory. 
So first of all, our faith is tested. Secondly, testing works for us, not against us. Testing works for us, not against us. This word trying in verse number 3 has to do with approval or proving. It's also used in 1 Peter 1 and verse 7. The trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Precious metals have to go through some sort of purification process to purge off the dross, the impurities, to produce the pure, the finest, the most precious form of that metal. So God purges and prunes in our lives to produce a faith that is more precious, more valuable than even gold, the most valuable metal on the earth. It may not seem like that at the time that we're going through the trial, but the final appraisal is done by God, and he desires that our faith be of more value than gold itself. As we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So our faith is always tested. Testing works for us, not against us. And then thirdly and finally, and we'll close with this today, trials rightly evaluated, trials rightly evaluated and used grow Excuse me, trials rightly evaluated and used, they, they help us to grow and to mature. When we rightly evaluate trials and we use them the way God wants us to use them, then they grow us, they mature us, they equip us. We read here, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, verse number three, worketh patience. Patience. This word patience has to do with endurance. It is the idea of keeping going when the going gets tough. I think of a basketball team that has to practice full court pressure. And they have to practice it over and over and over and over. So when the full court pressure comes in the game, they know how to break the press. I think of it in the terms of baseball where... baseball player has to get up to the plate and come into a pressure situation with runners on base. And a good baseball team can produce runs when there are runners in scoring position, when the pressure is on. I think of a musician who has to, in a recital or in a concert, they have to hit the right notes. And that time of pressure... So we have to endure. God is strengthening our faith. God is strengthening our life. He is focusing our trust upon him and producing within us a patience, which is a courageous endurance or perseverance in the midst of suffering and difficulty. Impatience and immaturity often go together, don't they? Impatience and immaturity often go together, but patience often goes together with maturity. God wants us to be patient believers, enduring, faithful, even when times are tough. We have examples in Hebrews 11 of those who endured looking to a city whose builder and maker is God. 
We're reminded in Hebrews 6 and verse number 12 about those who have gone before us, those examples who through patience and faith inherit the promises. May we have that same kind of joyful attitude and have that same kind of understanding mind so that we can count it all joy when we fall into various or diverse temptations. That we might go through those trials bringing glory to God and growing in our faith. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning thankful for this passage and these promises. Thank you for who you are and that we can trust you, that we don't have to go into despair, that we don't have to try to drown out our troubles with all of the sins of this world. But Lord, we can be sustained by you as we trust you by faith and depend upon your grace. Lord, I pray that you will do your work in our hearts as we sing this song. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, Lord, may today be the day where they turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith. Lord, as believers, no matter what kind of trial we're going through, Lord, may we trust you. May we be renewed in our minds and our hearts to count it all joy to have the right perspective, to know you better through the trials that you allow in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.